That being said, let me pray for us, and then we'll get into God's Word. Father, thank you for the privilege that we have to come here in freedom, in liberty, to proclaim your word, to learn from it, uh, Lord, to teach it, um, to teach it authoritatively uh, for you to use it to demand that we live a certain way and uh, function in a certain way and worship you in a certain way. And Lord, we thank you uh, that you have not placed us here without uh, resources, but you have given us your word, your instruction manual. Uh, Lord, forgive us for our frailty. Uh, for our tendency to forget everything that you teach us. And Lord, I pray that you would use tonight to see how important it is uh, that we do remember, uh, that we do recite uh, things from your word on a regular basis so that we may be ready when the trials hit. Lord, I pray that you will use this time now to teach each one of us, cause each one of us to look more like Christ by the time we're done here. And Lord, would you please grant us the privilege of going forth from this building and uh, leading others into the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And we hand this time over to you and ask you to do great and mighty things in and through it. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, now. If you would, please turn to Psalm 145. We're going to read through this together, and then we're going to examine the text. Starting in verse 1, David says, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness, and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all of his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up those who are bowed down. The eyes of all who look to you and you give them their food in due season you open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all of his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears the cry, their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Now, if you are a sinful, damaged, cynical, have a very limited attention span uh, and are in need of constant stimulus like I am, you could easily fall into the trap that I easily fall into and that is this is just another psalm talking about the greatness of God again. Heard it, done it, been there, 
what I, you know, bring on the miracles, bring on the battles, bring on the wars, bring on the instruction and things that I can apply to my life. Uh, I already know that God is great. Let's get on with it. Well, before we have that reaction, and I'm preaching more to me than anybody else here, uh, let's not be so fast to breeze past this song. It is different. Uh, it is identified as David's song. He identifies this. He highlights this in a way that he doesn't highlight the others. This whole psalm is what is called an acrostic poem. Not all psalms are like this. It is a hymn of praise written such that each successive verse begins with the next sequential letter of the Hebrew alphabet. This is a commonly used mnemonic device employed by writers to assist the reader in memorizing the text or a list of things. So why would this be here? For one reason and one reason alone, to make the reader memorize it. So then the question must be asked, why is he putting special effort into having us or encouraging us to memorize this? And he doesn't do that with the other ones. Before we get into the meaning of a lot of what is in here, and before we answer that question, let's first get a handle on the purpose of this psalm so that we do not develop wrong expectations from it or misapply what it is telling us. What is it and what is it not? As an acrostic poem, this psalm is not designed to develop ideas or to instruct. Um, if I say I have... Uh, there's something running around in my backyard and it's got four legs and it's got floppy ears and a long tail and it chases cats. What have I told you to do? I haven't told you to do anything. I've given you absolutely no command. And as we read through this psalm, you'll notice the same thing. What we've got is a description, not a prescription. We've got God describing something here, and at no point is he telling us to do anything. There is something that he wants us to do, and I already covered that. He wants us to remember this. But there's nothing in the wording that, that commands us to do anything. He says that this will occur. So, uh, again, this psalm is not designed to develop ideas or to instruct. Rather, it is designed to invite a good, healthy, productive response from God's people for whom he cares. It contains good theology concerning God's greatness, his power, and his character. It is not to be read as would be an epistle, like Romans or 1 Corinthians or Titus. It is not to be read as would be an epistle, which includes a lot of instruction and clarification of ideas. While both the epistle and the acrostic psalm are equally inspired, accurate, and necessary, and God-breathed, their purposes are very different. An epistle is to a textbook as an acrostic psalm is to a pep rally. See the difference between the two. While the epistle introduces and details theological aspects of God, the acrostic psalm, which we'll be looking at now, uh, assumes those theological tenets to already be true and motivates the believer to respond to them. So, as noted earlier, we see the commonly used mnemonic device of acrostics employed in this psalm. Why would the author employ a mnemonic device at all? We answered that already. I'm going to say it again because I don't want you to forget. 
It's because he deems it important that his readers remember what he is telling them. Remember that. It is very central to the point that I'm going to drive home tonight. Why does the author deem it necessary to help the reader remember in this case? Because we are an extremely forgetful species. Amen? And what the author is attempting to get the reader to remember here is foundational and is necessary to grasp before we can grasp anything else. He could say to us, if you don't get this right, that God is great, or if you forget what I'm telling you here, nothing else of importance will ever be manageable. It all begins with God being great. You miss that, nothing else works. The central theme of the psalm is obviously that God is great. The accompanying theme, though, is don't forget it. Think about this for a moment. If you completely understood the ramifications of God being great, and by great what we mean is completely good, completely sovereign, in control of absolutely everything, and if we completely understood the ramifications of that, and if you remembered that on a regular, ongoing basis, because I know that if I asked you right now, is God great? By the way, it's defined in the Bible. You would say, yes, I know that. Will you remember that an hour from now? Will you remember that when you're driving home and the traffic gets nasty? Right? When the bill comes in the mail. Do we remember that on an ongoing basis? If we did, if we got it, how great God is, how different would our lives be? Did you ever think about that? Would you worry? Not at all. It'd be gone. Would you seek gratification in sin? No. Would you do things your way rather than God's way? Not at all. Not if I got it that God is good. And there are times when I do get it. But what did I say is our flaw? <laughs> We're forgetful. I am, as Caleb said, the headmaster of Grace Christian Academy. We have limited resources and a small staff team. Any changes to either one of those things has serious consequences. This summer, I have desperately been looking for teachers in the areas, like I said, of math, science, and Latin. And one of the effects of COVID has been that less people want to go into teaching as a profession. A couple days ago, one of my lead teachers came into my office to inform me that she will be taking a position in a government school that will provide her with more resources and opportunity. Another one, gone. I forgot in that moment, and it wasn't that I was remembering right before that moment and then forgot, it's that 10 minutes before that, my brain was on finding other teachers. A half hour before that, my brain was on finding other teachers. 10 hours before that, at three o'clock in the morning, my brain was on finding other teachers. I wasn't prepared for that moment. And in that moment, I forgot that God is great. I forgot that he is greater than the tanking job market. I forgot that he is greater than the inconvenience caused to me in the school. I forgot that he's greater than the cynics and the critics who take sick joy in our failure, and they do. But in that moment, I forgot all that. In so doing, as a result, the consequence was my anxiety shot through the roof, 
I became nauseous. I began to contemplate what I had done that was so wrong as to warrant such a tragedy. That's karmic thinking, by the way. That's not how God operates. I began to fantasize flipping burgers at McDonald's, etc. How radically different, though, would my response have been had I remembered at that moment, really in the core of my conviction. I, I could tell you mathematically that he's great, but I needed in my heart of hearts to know that he's great. How radically different would my response have been? had I been consciously knowing that at the moment. Think of all the stuff you worry about, all the outbursts of anger and displays of impatience you have throughout the day, all because you forget or don't even understand the implications of God's greatness. I'm convinced that if we fully grasp the greatness of God and we're forever mindful of it, we would never worry, we would never be anxious, we would never choose to sin again. Our walks would be more vibrant and our witness would be stronger, but we forget. That is why God writes through David in such a way that we remember the contents of the psalm. God is great, now remember it. The content, the wording that David uses here is God is great. The structure of this psalm, though, communicates that we are to remember it and be ever mindful of it. We aren't to remember in the sense that, oh yeah, I remember that from yesterday. We are to be ever mindful, regularly thinking about it. So now, what is it that we are to know and remember, and how do we go about knowing and remembering? David tells us right off the bat. He says, starting in verse 1, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name, how long? Forever. How frequently? Every day. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Notice he doesn't say, I will worry, I will complain about my circumstances, I will gossip about my enemies, or I will take matters into my own hands. David's focus was not on his circumstances or on his trials or on his enemies. His focus was on God. Did it make all those other things go away? No, not at all. Those things are going to be there whether you're thinking about them or not. David did a wise thing, though, and that was he transferred his focus to that which mattered. Set your heart and mind on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. In Philippians 4, 6, Paul takes a similar approach with the believers uh, there in Philippi when he instructs them to not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. It baffled me for the longest time as to how I was to give thanks for and during circumstances that were causing me angst. I couldn't quite figure that out. One day, a very good friend of mine who was running a business that was failing because of the poor economy made it all make sense to me. He was very anxious about his circumstances and constantly contemplating how he could fix things. He was a mess. He was a wreck. Growing more and more anxious as the days went by. Then he decided to change his mind in light of this verse that he ran across in his devotions and began to thank God instead for all the things that he could. He wasn't necessarily thanking God for the pain and the suffering and the failure of the economy. 
But he transferred his attention to the things that he could thank God for. His wife, his son, uh, that he has a business, uh, that he's saved. After practicing that for just a short while, he said that the anxiety started to go away and his joy returned. Paul wasn't instructing the Philippians to thank God for the things that are causing them angst. Although you can do that. Uh, because, you know, what does James say about it? They cause you to grow. Rather, though, he was instructing them to thank God for what they could, to be reminded of God's goodness and sovereign blessings in their lives rather than their undesirable circumstances. We don't do that. Why not? Because we forget. David is pretty much doing the same thing here. He's got powerful people who are out to destroy him, He's not enjoying comfort, the comfortable palace life at all. He's seen his share of death and carnage, often in his own family. He doesn't have it easy. But he has directed his attention elsewhere and in a direction that produces praise. When we thank God and praise God for what we can, our attention is taken from those things that threaten our joy and distract us from living for Christ. David's use of the term king in verse 1, indicates his acknowledgement of God's sovereign role in his life. He doesn't just flippantly throw these words around. It's there for a reason. In those days, they would have an even better understanding of what a king is. You do what he tells you to do. He's extolling God as sovereign, and he loves his king. David parallels verse 1 in Hebraic poetic fashion when he states that he will do it every day. He reiterates in both verses that he will do this forever and ever. And we highlighted that when we read through this initially. How long do we do it? Forever and ever. How often do we do it? Every day. And if you don't do it forever and ever, and if you're not doing it every day, you're going to wind up like me, anxious about stuff. Amen? Why? Why do we do this? What enables David to think in such a way that he could say such things? Because... In verse 3 it says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. Why praise? Because God is great. Not because it gets me stuff. Okay? Uh, by the way, that, that is a very popular message in our church culture today in America. We don't praise God to, so we get stuff. We praise God because he deserves it. And he's worthy of it. The response of extolling, praising, and blessing God's name are not simply subjective responses that Dave personally deemed as good. The response of extolling, praising, and blessing God's name are the only reasonable responses to this reality of God's greatness. Romans 12.1 is similar, and it states, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. That last phrase translated into your spiritual worship literally means your rational service. It's the only thing that is reasonable to do in light of what is true. To do anything other than present your bodies as a living sacrifice would be unreasonable and irrational. David says, I will extol God, I will bless God's name, I will bless God every day, and I will do it forever because to do otherwise would be unreasonable and irrational in light of what is absolutely true about God's greatness. 
David is not allowing for opinion here. He's not being politically correct. He's making an absolute statement and stating it objectively. This is not akin to our modern notion that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. It's objectively true. This is, if A is true, then B can be the only reasonable response, and to do otherwise is absolute foolishness, regardless of your feelings or your opinion. By the way, truth doesn't care about your feelings. It doesn't. God is great. It warrants our praise and our attention, and to do otherwise would be an irrational act on our part. To emphasize this greatness, just in case we're not convinced yet that he is great enough, David then refers to God's greatness in the second part of verse 3 as unsearchable. God's greatness is beyond man's ability to even investigate it, let alone comprehend it. Now, what do we do with that? Quite a few years ago, I had the privilege of taking a seminary class under Dr. J.P. Moreland. I would encourage all of you to find him on YouTube and listen to him. Um, and uh, every class, he would end with what appeared to be some kind of uh, heretical statement. And he'd say it, and he'd walk out the door. And then we got two days to beat each other up over it and, you know, scream heretic and all sorts of stuff. So two days late, uh, one day he finishes the class and he says, you've heard it stated that God is everywhere and that he's existed forever. That is not true. And he walked out the door. <laughs> and, you know, we're picking up shovels and pitchforks. We're like, stone him. Um, and we fought about it. And we argued about it and debated and searched our scriptures. And we're going, how can he say this? Came back in two days later and he says, you know, the other day I said that God is not everywhere and that God is not all time. He said, what we need to understand is that those two qualities are uh, finite qualities. They're, they're spatial and they're temporal. They're confined to time and space. God is not confined to time and space. We can't say that he's outside of time and space because the term outside indicates Spatial existence on top of that. So we can't even use that language. He's not confined by time and space. He's not infinite. He's eternal. I heard a light bulb go on over here. When, when he said that, my, my whole uh, comprehension of God just opened up. And it went, wow. You know, it, God is beyond my ability to understand him because I am so confined to the time and space continuum that I can't even think beyond it to imagine, even imagine what he is. Isn't it better to have a God like that? God's greatness surpasses our capacities. We are finite while he is eternal. We are confined to a time-space continuum and are therefore limited to comprehending things in a way that those two dynamics will permit. We're grounded. We're stuck. We can't get out of that. You know, I, I studied math, and I thought through math I might be able to figure out a way to get out of that. Well, math still leads you into more math. You're still confined. God is not measured as we are capable of measuring. 
which is by the passage of time and the span of space. He is eternal. He's not confined. Verse 4, one generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. This psalm should not only be memorized, which is a longitudinal act for me on a line of time, but it should also be perpetuated from generation to generation, which is a latitudinal act. As I remember from moment to moment, I'm longitudinally, I taught math, not English. Um, I'm thinking through that relationship with God. As I'm passing it up or down generationally, I'm now functioning longitudinally, okay, or latitudinally. Did I mess up my L's? I did. Why? Because not only do we forget God's greatness, but we also fail to make the next generation aware. And that's why I teach at GCA. Because the schools today are not, and Mike, you can attest to this, what you grew up in. There is a concentrated effort to go after the minds of this generation and wean them from a healthy understanding and adherence to God. And at this point, guys, they don't care that you're their parents. Okay? Verse 5, on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. This is once again me reminding me of God's greatness when I meditate. Note that David doesn't just make reference to God's majesty and works, but says that on these things I will meditate. Meditation involves contemplation, thinking through the greatness of the greatness. For example, it's one thing to remember that God spoke all things into being. That's pretty hefty. It's another thing, though, to take that a step further and ponder how his word actually congealed into matter, and then to ponder then what the actual matter or what the, the actual nature of matter is. What is this made out of? Well, matter came into being because of God's word. Right? Kind of makes you look at things a little bit differently. Verse 6. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness, and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. Notice the language used in verses 6 and 7. Speak, declare, pour forth, sing aloud. Perpetuating awareness of God's greatness to others involves pointing to great things he has done and qualitatively praising those things. Not just pointing them out, but highlighting how important and how great and how miraculous they are. We engage in this when we pass along the great works God did in history as recorded in the Old Testament, or uh, as we point people to the cross, or as we simply give our own personal testimony. It is against our human nature to declare the excellencies of the Lord. We don't do this naturally. It is part of our new redeemed nature, though, but it is often forgotten. Therefore, I must meditate on those excellencies regularly. Before I can effectively speak, declare, pour forth, or sing aloud of God's awesome deeds, greatness, goodness, and righteousness, I must first be reminded and convinced of in my own heart 
Hence, my need to remember functions that are fostered by daily meditation and offering of praise. Verse 8, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. Sometimes the wonderful things God has done before me or in my presence or in my hearing have long passed into the rearview mirror of my life and have grown strangely dim. Why? Because we forget. Even after contemplation and meditation, I am at times simply incapable of being impacted by them the way that I was when I was first exposed. What tends to have a greater impact on me, though, and elicit a stronger praise is knowing the magnitude of the bullet that I dodged, of knowing the magnitude of sin and failure for which I'm responsible and acknowledging that even though God could and has every right to completely vaporize me, he chooses not to. That is because of his nature being gracious and merciful. In his grace, he gives me much that I do not deserve. And in his mercy, he withholds that which I do deserve. Praise God. Verse 10, all of your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. Verses 10 through 13 expound further on God's greatness as shown through his graciousness and mercy, which are extended to the saints. Now, let's discuss saints for a moment. We tend not to use that word a whole lot because it's been abused throughout world history and because it just kind of makes us uncomfortable. But it is a biblical term, and it is used of those of us who are the redeemed. Saints are not enshrined do-gooders who have been voted on by a council to achieve special spiritual status. Let's get that out of our heads. Biblically, saints simply means holy ones, those who have been made holy, not by works, or by personal achievement, but by God. I am a saint. If you watch my life, you will go, you're lying. <laughs> I lose my temper. Uh, I get anxious. You know, I, I sin just like the rest of you guys. Um, so I am not someone who should be enshrined by any means. But biblically, I am a saint because I've been redeemed, not because of my own credit but because of what the Lord has done for me and to me. These holy ones are capable of speaking of the splendor of God's kingdom because they have experienced the great grace and mercy within it. Verse 13 ends with reminding us that the Lord is faithful in all his words. He means what he says and he says what he means and that he is kind in all his works, even the ones that may not feel so kind at the time. For example, James tells us to consider all joy when we encounter various trials because we can be confident that they will produce endurance, they will produce completion, they will produce perfection. Without trials, without those annoying pains in our lives, these things would not be produced and that would actually be a great act of cruelty. 
God in his kindness sometimes makes things nice and fluffy. Other times he makes them downright painful. But it's all kind. Verse 14, the Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all who look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. This speaks to God's generosity where David has pointed out God's power, strength, majesty, mercy, and grace as all things that point to his greatness. David now expounds on God's kindness by addressing the faithful care he shows to those in need. David also brings in a new dimension to God's greatness by referring to God's righteousness. The Lord, in verse 17, is righteous in all his ways and kind in all of his works. Finally, David clarifies that not all benefit from who God is in everything. Not everybody benefits from that. God's care is for his own. And while non-believers may occasionally benefit from God's character, there are aspects in which they will not, and only God's people will. Verse 18, the Lord is near to all who call on him. Right there is something that separates the saint from the non. He's near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. Okay? There is a narrow path. And there is a way that we are to call on God, and it is defined by him. Not by my feelings, not by my upbringing, not by my inclinations. He makes it clear in his word. Verse 19, he fulfills the desire of those who fear him. Let me clarify that. The desire of those who fear him have desires that have been formed by him. He also hears the, their cry and saves them. So I'm fully confident that everything's going to be in, fine in September. <laughs> Verse 20, the Lord preserves all who love him, but is the only negative in this whole psalm. All the wicked he will destroy. Let's remember that if you are not wicked, it's not thanks to you. If I'm not wicked, it's not thanks to me. When we are no longer wicked, it is because the divine creator has intruded in our lives and changed us. The wicked guy out there I would be him if left to my own devices. And it is the fact that I am not. It is the fact that I know I have eternal life and I am a child of God. And knowing that I had nothing to do with that is where I can join David in this praise and adoration and extolation of God's word because I know he had everything to do with it. In summary, we see that David writes Psalm 145 in such a way that indicates we should memorize it. Why does he do it with this particular psalm and not all others? Because it speaks of God's greatness. Why does God's greatness get special attention over so many things that could be considered? Because if we fail to understand God's greatness, we will fail to act faithfully and walk with him effectively. 
Why extol, bless, praise, speak of, pour forth, sing aloud, make known, and commend, and do so every day forever and ever? Because as I do it regularly, I'm reminded daily that I reside within the realm of God's rule, and as one of his holy ones, he extends great care for me. Verse 21, David ends with, My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord, and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Well, let me pray for us. Father, forgive us for being such a forgetful people. Lord, I acknowledge that uh, 10 minutes from now, uh, I will be anxious and worry about so many other things unless you intervene. Lord, we ask that you would invite one of us um, by your Holy Spirit Take control of our minds, which then in turn run our hearts and the core of our convictions. And Lord, help us to be ever mindful, even when we fight you on it. Help us to be ever mindful that you are great and that you are our God, you are our King, you are in control. And as a result, we can be fully confident uh, that anxiety uh, does not, should not belong to us. Lord, as we leave here, may we function as if we really know that you are great. And Lord, keep us from losing that. Uh, would you set up things in our homes? Would you uh, cause brethren to encourage other brethren to remind each other? Um, Lord, do things to constantly keep yourself in our face, in our hearts, in our minds so that we do not forget that you are great and worthy of all the praise we have to offer. We thank you for that privilege. We acknowledge it's not one that we earned. It's been given to us out of your greatness, out of your mercy, and out of your grace. And Lord, we thank you for it. In Christ's name, amen.